Welcome to Faith Baptist Church, Great Village, where we believe in the truth of the gospel, building of community, and engaging in the mission of Christ. We hope you enjoy this week's message as our pastors share from God's Word. I want to start this morning by just thanking all of you who've been praying for me and for my family. <clears throat> I um, had my, uh, what will hopefully be my final radiation treatment uh, a week ago Friday. And uh, people have been praying, and uh, I haven't suffered uh, any really awful side effects, minimal side effects, which I consider to be, part, in large part, uh, uh, an answer to prayer. So thank you for your prayers for us. Um, and uh, if you would be inclined to continue to pray, pray that, that they actually work. That's what we're praying now. Uh, it's one thing to go through through that stuff, it's another thing to go through it and have them not do what they're supposed to do. So I really appreciate, uh, appreciate your prayers. And uh, so it's good to be here with you this morning. Um, let's see, what time is it? Oh, it's 11 o'clock. That's just about perfect. <laughs> oh, it's, it's, it's a, a very large subject, isn't it? Your family, your church, and the world. That's our series that we're into, and uh, today we are continuing with the second week. Last week we couldn't gather here because of the power outage, and we are working on that. It's one of the things that we'll be talking briefly about at our members meeting this afternoon, updating on that issue. But I, I hope that you took the 38 minutes that's how long it would have taken you to watch uh, or listen to the uh, foundational message that Josh shared uh, last week uh, online uh, to begin this important series. It's, um, uh, his message was uh, to help us better understand the the concept of, of family by looking back even before the creation of the world to the mutual love of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the world even began and to begin to appreciate the implications of that reality for uh, families. Um, this morning, we want to begin approaching uh, the problems some of the problems and issues we deal with in our families and in our churches in uh, this world we live in in 2023. But to do that, we're going to go back again this morning. And this time we are going back uh, to that first family of man. And when we take a look back, at those early chapters of Genesis, we find that the first family was a broken family. Not when it was established by God, created by God at creation, but shortly thereafter when sin entered the world with all of its devastating consequences. Now, I hope that you've made yourself familiar with or refresh your memory and uh, Genesis chapter 3 and 4 this week, which 
was the advance reading notification we sent out this past week in preparation for today. And I know that that's hard. It's hard to carve out the time to read those scriptures. Um, it's also hard to get up here and do a reasonable presentation if you don't know what I'm talking about. And we don't have time to read Genesis chapter 3 and 4 this morning. So I hope that you, when you get those notifications, that you will take advantage of that. If you don't, you say, I don't get those notifications, that means you don't get the newsletter. And if you don't get the newsletter, you should consider dropping a word to Brittany in the office here and asking her to put you on the list for that. I'll also mention the, the prayer alerts. We have prayer alert letters that go out. How many of you received the, the prayer alert that went out uh, two days ago for Janice McLeod? Put your hand up if you see, received that. Okay, so many of you received that. If you don't know what I'm talking about, get in touch with Brittany in the office and say, could you please add my email to the prayer alert, and then you'll be informed, not just for prayer, but uh, for other things as well, for events and so on. Um, the newsletter, yeah, make sure you do that while you're at it if you don't. All right, so here's the first takeaway from those early portions of Scripture for our, for our purposes this morning and this week. Are you listening? Sin has catastrophic effects on us personally, but also collectively. It is nearly impossible to exaggerate the explosive impact of the narrative of Genesis chapter 3 and 4. And we do need to consider those two chapters together. Genesis chapter 3 and 4 should be considered together, read together. Genesis 1 and 2 should be read together uh, as well. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 are all about what? The creation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Exodus chapter 20 adds, and all that in them is. With man, both a male and female, the first family as the crowning glory of creation. Genesis chapter 3 chronicles the rebellion and the fall of humanity into sin and death as a result of sin. And then chapter 4 of Genesis presents us with the consequent brokenness of those uh, precious family bonds that we are uh, uh, thinking about in these days. The last half of chapter 3, Genesis chapter 3, contains God's pronouncement. They're in the garden to our first parents of the consequences of the fall into sin. And those consequences are outlined there by the Lord himself, and they are, you can read them, pain, dysfunction, more pain, toil, and death. So far, it's not a very positive message, is it? That's what's there. You can read it, and hopefully you have. Now, um, in the narrative just before God made that pronouncement, in the, in the storyline, just before God made that proclamation, what, what do you see there when you read it? Right after that 
rebellious act of treason against God, before God shows up (laughs) in the garden to call them to account, what do you see there? Let me help you. Guilt. Immediately. Shame. Immediately. Fear. Hiding. Blame shifting. Or denial. And these could be said to be the natural consequences or elements of our sinfulness, which followed and follow still. Then in chapter 4, we have this horrifying account of domestic violence. And we need to connect all these dots because what happens a lot of the time when people consider these this inspired narrative, uh, they use it to justify themselves. I say they, but I probably should say we because we all tend to do this. We say, oh, well, at least I haven't killed anybody yet. I guess I'm not that bad. And it's very common for people, for us, to disassociate ourselves from that sacred text and miss the intent that God had for including it in his scripture. The reason he gave it to us. Let's not uh, miss it. When we look back at the first part of chapter four, of course, when I talk about the domestic violence, I'm talking about what? Cain killing his brother Abel. But when you look back in that chapter before Cain raised his hand and took his brother's life, what do do we see there? Jealousy. It's huge, right? Let's uh, let's take a look at those first uh, 10 uh, verses of Genesis chapter 4. Let's read some scripture together. And... uh, And then we'll uh, revisit the question. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Now, we're not told why that was the case. You're just going to have to assume, along with me, that there were very good reasons why this happened. And we could go down the, the whole issue of sacrifice and shedding of blood, and uh, uh, it doesn't happen in a vegetable garden, hopefully, not in your vegetable garden. Um, and some of the significance of that thematically in Scripture, but... But without going there, let's just, let's just say that God had very good reasons for accepting Abel's offering while rejecting Cain's. But nonetheless, it says there, Cain was very what? Angry. And his face fell. 
And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? You know, that's a really good question. In fact, I would suggest the next time you find yourself angry that you ask yourself that question, why am I angry? And I can almost guarantee you the first thought in your mind will be somebody else is making you angry. And I can also guarantee you that that's not true. Very good question. Why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Verse 8 says, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. That's, I find interesting. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. I'm pretty sure we're getting a thumbnail sketch here. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Lie. <laughs> am, I, am I my brother's keeper? There's another good question. Am I my brother's keeper? Verse 10 says, the Lord then said, what have you done? Of course, God knew before he asked the question. Same as Jesus always knew the answers to the questions before he asked them as well. It wasn't asked for his benefit, but for ours. What have you done? Another very important question. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And we're just going to stop there. And let me ask you the question again. Prior to Cain's uh, raising his hand against his brother and slaying him, what do we see in the text? Somebody said, a few of you said jealousy. And that's there, isn't it? The word might not be there, but it's there, right? Jealousy. And, and, and you saw, as you read through there, anger, right? I'm sure that uh, the, the, one of the major sources of the anger was the jealousy. Uh, resentment. And that's where the battle is won or lost right there, isn't it? By the time Cain raised his hand against his brother, he'd already lost the battle against sin. So here's what we shouldn't miss. We need to connect all the dots. Because all of these things and more throughout the biblical storyline come together to form for us a picture in order that we might better understand what sin is and what it does. It's quite obvious, I believe, to all of us that murder is an extremely grievous manifestation of sin. But I would suggest to you that it stands out by virtue of degree and severity, not because it is something different or special. I think I'm going to say that again, just in case you don't understand what I'm saying here. Murder is an extremely grievous manifestation of sin, but it stands out not because it is somehow different in kind, rather 
by virtue of the degree of severity of the act. It's presented more as the epitome of sinfulness. And there was a whole lot of sin going on before Cain raised his hand and took his brother's life. And I believe it's presented to us in this way because we tend to minimize sin. You know, you have the, the, the sin and the fall and the pronouncement and then murder. And I'm sure there was a whole lot of other stuff happening there, but God has seen fit to present it in this way, I believe, because we tend to minimize sin. We like to categorize sins. We like to talk about big sins and little sins. Why do we do that? Why do we like to categorize sins and put them on a scale of bad, worse, really bad, horrible, terrible, unthinkable? Why do we like to do that so much? I would suggest to you it's because it makes us feel better about ourselves. When we can point at somebody else's sin and say, well, at least I'm not as bad as Cain. There are a lot of people walking around today that believe they're not sinners because they haven't killed anybody. That's a problem. When we read this story, what we should be thinking is, so it's come to this. Connect the dots. Or if it helps, and I believe it does help, consider these words from Jesus. He said, Matthew chapter 5, verse 21 and 22, and I think we have that for the screen there, uh, but hopefully you uh, have read these words before. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. That's pretty clear, isn't it? And likewise, drop down a few verses to chapter uh, Matthew 5, verses 27, 28. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So let me say it again. There was a whole lot of sinning going on long before Cain raised his hand against his brother. And that's where the battle was lost. So today we're talking a lot about sin. It's the title of the sermon. Broken by sin, the fractured, fracturing of family bonds. And sin is an uncomfortable topic. you like talking about uncomfortable topics? Now, I know some of you do. You like to see people squirm. No, most of you don't like that at all. I'm not crazy about it either, but, but sometimes things are so important. You, you listening to me? Sometimes things are so important, they have to be talked about. 
And this is one of those times. Hiding is just one of the fundamental aspects of our sinfulness that we see in those early chapters of Genesis. And that is why the world in general dismisses even the concept of sin. Our series is called Your Family, Your Church, and the World. The world in general dismisses the concept of sin, at least in its biblical construct. Why? I don't think the answer to that is overly simple, but I'm sure that in large part it is because with sin comes guilt. And we do not like to feel guilty. Nobody likes to feel guilty. As human beings, we tend to uh, take this approach in order to address, address the reality of guilt. Um, we do something about the feelings of guilt because we want to do as we please, but we don't want to f- feel guilty. So the general approach in the world in general, I'm, speaking, I'm generalizing here, but goes along the lines of let's do away with the rules so we can do as we please without feeling guilty. That's reasonable, rational, faulty, but rational. And if God is the lawgiver, well, let's just get rid of God too. We'll kill two birds birds of one stone. Now, we could talk a lot about this, but just think for a moment of the what's called the sexual revolution. Are you familiar with that term? Do you understand what the sexual revolution is, was? Think about it, think about it, because if it is acceptable to have multiple sexual encounters with multiple partners outside of the kind of real love and commitment contained within the biblical concept of marriage, then you don't need to feel guilty about it. And that line of thought was behind and was really the catalyst for the entire uh, movement in in our history that we refer to as the sexual revolution. But there are other examples. Uh, uh, We want to think that um, we can think whatever we want about someone, and it's okay as long as we don't pick up a rock and hit them over the head with it. So you don't have to feel bad. You don't have to feel bad about resenting somebody. Let's do away with the law of resentment. The only way we can really do away with that is to really do away with justice. But anyway, that's another, that's another subject. But, and how does this all work out for the world we're in? How's it working, do you think? This idea we'll just get rid of the laws and the rules and and, and the, the, the mores, and, and then we won't feel guilty. How do you think that's working out? Now, some of you would say, well, I don't think it's working out very good, but you know what? Um, denial is part of the condition of our sinfulness. Hmm. The progressive ideology of our culture has never been more determined to throw off the sense of morality placed upon it by God. And so if the Bible speaks about sin, let's call it hate literature. Now, this is not hyperbole. 
what I'm saying right now. Um, check out this uh, headline from 2015. Let me read to you uh, the first couple of paragraphs from the article. This is, uh, what is that, eight years ago. Charleston, South Carolina. The South Carolina newspaper that won, <laughs> listen, this is, the South Carolina newspaper that won this year's Pulitzer Prize for public service journalism has drawn criticism for linking the Palmetto State's domestic violence problems with its residents' belief in the Bible's teaching about gender. The Pulitzer Prize Board announced April 20th that Charleston's Post and Courier beat out the Boston Globe and the Wall Street Journal for the 2015 Public Service Prize, an award for meritorious public service by a newspaper or news site. The Post and Courier's winning series that they called Till Death Do Us Part, published last August, probed why South Carolina is among the deadliest states in the union for women in terms of domestic violence and put the issue of what to do about it on the state's agenda. <coughs> and of course, if you read that article, you can go online and read it, you'll find there that they laid the blame right at the foot of the cross. Um, writing for the American Enterprise Institute in December of 2017, so two years later, sociologist Bradford Wilcox, who has remarkable credentials, by the way, he said this. He said, as a sociologist who studies family and marriage trends, I predict that in the coming years, we'll see a growing wave of mainstream media and academic stories contending that religion, especially evangelical Christianity, hurts women, children, and families. <coughs> Excuse me. So, question. <clears throat> Have the scriptures been used for ill, for justifying abuse? Have God's words at times been appropriated for less than noble purposes for personal agendas? All the time. All the time. The scriptures themselves say as much, and the scriptures include multiple examples of people doing just that. And history is replete with example after example of people misinterpreting or misappropriating the teachings of scripture in order to justify their sin and their mistreatment of other people. It's very common. And we need to be aware of that. We need to be sensitive to that. Uh, Bradford Wilcox goes on to say in, in his article uh, about the stats of domestic abuse in our day, he says this. He says, although, as noted before in the article, the church is not necessarily enabling abuse, some local churches, clergy, and counselors fail to address abuse head-on for fear of breaking up a marriage. 
Others steer clear of addressing the topic from the pulpit or in adult education for fear of broaching an uncomfortable subject. Then he says this, this silence around domestic violence has to end. Thank you very much, Jonah. You're a good man. Did I get that right, Jonah? That was Jonah, wasn't it? Yes, okay. They grow so fast. Yeah. Now, this is heavy. So, work with me here. It's important. According to U.S. Justice Department analysis of crime, more than 40% of adult female hospital emergency room visits are caused by violence at the hand of a male intimate partner. That's one stat. Various studies show that 22 to 33% of North American women will be assaulted by an intimate partner in their lifetime. Our national president, the president of our fellowship, our association, writes a blog every week, and this last week his blog was about domestic abuse. Because abuse isn't just happening out there in the world somewhere. It's in homes. And it's not just unchurched people. Uh, Stat from Steve's blog, 51% of Canadian women will experience some form of violence after they turn 16. You should check out Steve's blog, actually. You can do that. Uh, I think we might have put a link in the newsletter. If we didn't... uh, Fire us off a note or something, and, and, and you, can, uh, you can get that link and check it out. Now, here's a couple of other things for you to chew on, okay? Are you, you, the wheel's grinding here. You're processing this. I know it's hard, but it's important. Research shows, listen, research shows that conservative Protestant men who attend church regularly are found to be the least likely group to engage in domestic violence. That's good, isn't it? I mean, it's not good that anyone engages in domestic violence, but I was still happy to see that. But here's the other part of that research. Are you listening still? Conservative Protestant men who are irregular church attendees are the most likely to batter their wives. Even more likely than non-church goers.
Now, one of the questions that would come to our minds is why? And nobody has a definitive answer as to why, because I haven't seen one, but I have seen some research and have a few thoughts on it myself. And it does seem likely to me that the biblical directives for families, including the teaching of headship and submission, is misunderstood by many, including many insecure, immature, unhealthy men who distort it all to justify their dominion over and their abuse of women. Have you ever heard the saying, he has just enough knowledge to be dangerous? Have you ever heard that saying? Well, I'm afraid that that is absolutely true when it comes to a a lot of men who think of themselves as Christians. They have just enough knowledge to be dangerous. And then, of course, we have surrounding us for for decades, uh, if not centuries, we've had this real man rhetoric that is so prevalent in our culture for so long. And there are men on the peripheral of church life, nominal Christians, who pick up the parts that they like and are shaped more by the surrounding culture than by scripture, and who end up with a distorted caricature of what it means to be a Christian and a distorted caricature of what it means to be a man. And I want to quote Owen Strachan uh, at this time. Uh, Owen Strachan was a former president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Are you still listening? Or have I put you to sleep already? I've been known to do that. Listen, this is important. He says, biblical manhood and the biblical vision of marriage creates men who would rather die than harm women. He writes, Eve was formed out of the body of Adam. His body was literally used to make her body. And then he says, there is a worldview in that textual detail. Men protect women. They use their strength for women, not against them. They gladly place themselves in harm's way to bless women. He writes, we grieve when we hear of churches that do not teach this publicly, as many do not. And then he adds, complementarian theology has created thousands upon thousands of local churches filled with men who would rather die than see their wife and children harmed. Now, while I hope that we can all appreciate here today how very important these things are and how important it is to say these things from this platform, this is not a sermon on domestic violence. As horrible as domestic violence is, this is a sermon on sin and how sin affects us as families. And while Violence is an acute form of sinfulness. It is 
not the whole of it, nor the most of it, nor the root of it. If it was, then those of us here today who have never lifted our hands against our spouse could pat ourselves on the back and walk out the door and go home and feel good. But there is a whole lot more to this problem than just domestic violence. It's a larger problem than that because sin is a larger problem than that. And we need to know this well because we need to connect the dots. We need to connect the dots. Do you remember what Jesus said? Connect the dots because we are all broken by sin. It's not just the uh, wife batterers who are broken by sin. All of us are broken by sin. And the only way to address it is to own it. We need to own it. We need for God to give us a good understanding of what this means on an intensely personal level. So hang in with me a little longer here. As we think a little more about what the Bible says about your sin and mine. The truth about sin is presented in Scripture in different ways. In the Genesis narrative that we were referencing, disobedience or rebellion against God is in the forefront. Sin is disobedience, sin is rebellion against God. The Apostle John in 1 John 3 says that sin is a transgression of the law. The Apostle Paul speaks of our sin as our shortcomings. And there are, those of you who read the Bible, you know this is true, there are many facets of sin set out in Scripture and illustrated throughout Scripture. And I believe that the uh, different terms and the multitude of descriptors and metaphors used throughout Scripture for sin is for the purpose that you and I can gain a better understanding of what it is and how pervasive it is and how difficult it is and how destructive it is and how damning it is and how profoundly we are afflicted by it. Sin is often pictured in the gospel accounts, in the teaching and ministry of Jesus, as a sickness, a spiritual sickness, if you will. You may recall, and I think we have it ready to put on the screen, Matthew chapter 9, where uh, Jesus uh, responds to the Pharisees who objected to him spending time with tax collectors and sinners. It says there, Jesus passed on from there. He saw a man called Matthew sitting on the tax, at the tax booth and he said to him, follow me. Matthew was a tax collector, therefore a sinner in the eyes of the Pharisees. And he rose and he followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard it, he said, listen to his words, read his words, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus came for sinners. Jesus came to this world for sinners. The gospel is that Jesus Christ gave his life for sinners. If you don't see yourself as a sinner, you do not see your need of the gospel. You don't see your need of Jesus because he was all about sacrificing himself for sinners. So with regard to Jesus' interaction with the religious Pharisees, uh, he also talked a lot about a form of blindness inherent within the sinful condition. So not only did Jesus often uh, uh, allude to sin as a, a sort of spiritual sickness, and there's a connection there between all the healing, um, healing miracles of Jesus and this idea that sin is like a, a spiritual sickness. But over in uh, John chapter 9, remember where Jesus healed the blind man? And uh, this is uh, John chapter 9, verse 39 through 41. He said, uh, to them there. He says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who may see may become blind. Those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. See, that's the guilt thing, right? If you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now you say, we see your guilt remains. Jesus and, and these passages give us the sense that sin is like a, it's like a sickness and, it, and it's like a blindness. There's a blindness that comes with sin. Our blindness, spiritual blindness, is part of our sinfulness. The fact that we can look right at something and not even see it you can look right at something in your own life and not even see it because there's a, a horrible blindness that comes with our, with our sinfulness. And I believe that all of this and more and more and more all through the pages of scriptures uh, is intended by God to prevent us from having this simplistic or shallow or matter-of-fact understanding and response to human sinfulness. Oh, I haven't killed anybody. I guess I'm a pretty good guy. <clears throat> the title of the sermon today is Broken by Sin. And that term, broken, has a biblical warrant as well. Sometimes sin is presented in Scripture as a brokenness. And all of us know what it's like when something is broken. You try to use a broken tool, like... It's what? It's pretty useless. Do you ever feel that way in your life? Do you sense the brokenness of your, of your heart before God and in your relationships? The Bible teaches us that sin is, is, is like a, a, a brokenness. And all of these things are intended by God, I believe, to help us resist the temptation or tendency to underestimate the weight or the depth of these things. The effects of sin in our lives is catastrophic and it's profoundly catastrophic. Profound is a good word, by the way. The word profound means deep. If you travel to Latin America, you can, 
you can learn that. Deep is the opposite of shallow. Shallow like men who attend church once in a while. <clears throat> shallow like people who read, their, read the Bible once in a while. Profound comes into the English language from Latin, profundo, meaning deep, bottomless, vast, obscure, difficult to fathom. What's a fathom? Pardon? That's a fathom. And they use it, the sailors used fathoms to measure the depth of the sea. And the word profound means uh, hard to fathom, deep. The book of Proverbs says the purpose in a man's heart is like deep water. I don't want to I don't want to bog you down here because I know you're not all as interested in details or trivia as I am, but this isn't really actually trivia, but let me throw it out here, okay? In Scripture, the sea often is symbolic representation of, um, of evil. And you can... Uh, Remember that the next time uh, you read about Jesus walking on water <coughs> or the next time you read baptism passages um, or the next time you read in, where it says the new heaven and the earth, there will be no sea. What I'm saying here is we need to appreciate how profoundly sinful we all are. And I know we don't like to hear that. We don't. It's, it's offensive. But I'm not done yet. Sin is, first of all, a heart issue. Jesus said this. He said, for from within... Out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things, Jesus says, come from within. We like to think that the evil is out there somewhere. The bad people are out there somewhere. All the bad stuff is out there somewhere. Jesus said, you know what? It's in you. That's not a popular message. But that's what Jesus said. Sin is, first of all, a heart issue. And you know what? God has a camera set up in every heart. God has a camera in your heart. Now, I'm hoping that when he records that, that he's not going to show it to anybody. But he has a camera in your heart. The Bible's teaching on sin is not just that we are broken, but that we are profoundly broken. We are not just affected by sin. If you read the whole of Scripture, you will see that we are, we are wrecked by it. We're slain by it. We're devastated, decimated, permeated, 
captivated. And you may hear somebody say, well, you know, it's really quite simple. Uh, Sin is disobedience, so the answer is simple. You just have to obey, that's all. You just have to make the right choices. Now, choices are important, don't get me wrong. But when people say things like this, they may may have the best of intentions, but they had limited understanding when it comes to just what it means when the Bible says we have all sinned and come short of the glory of God and that we have sin living in us and that we are profoundly broken. Those kinds of statements grossly underestimate just how much we need God. If I could just pull myself up by the bootstraps and just turn my life around and stop doing all of those unwanted things that my heart tells me to do. I could turn this ship around and get going in the right direction. And That's not the way it works. We are profoundly personally broken by sin and we are collectively broken by sin. I, I don't want to hammer away at this anymore because I feel like I've beat, on you, beat, beat you up enough here. Um, but I want, I, want to just, I want to say that it's important as we talk about family that we understand that we are profoundly broken personally but we are also profoundly broken collectively. And each of us as sinners can have a devastating effect, but when you get a bunch of us together, it's even worse. And you know, there's this saying, better, we're better together, we're better together. It doesn't always work that way. Sometimes <laughs> we're worse together. I... Um, I thought about going to Matthew 19 where Jesus talks about divorce and <laughs> talking with you a little bit about that because <clears throat> there's a lot of things I think we misunderstand about that passage. Um, I thought about going to Matthew 18 where Jesus says, you know, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. And if he listens, you've won your brother. I thought, about, I thought wow, that's really relevant and practical to this whole thing. Um, but... Obviously, we are, we are limited in our time, and I've already taken quite a lot of your time this morning, but I, I, I want you to know a couple of things as I try to conclude some of these thoughts. Um, first, I want you to know that uh, more than once, we have had these conversations as uh, pastors about how hard it can be to speak on the subject of marriage and family when we know that there are many of us uh, who... Uh, aren't married, some who don't have children, some maybe who don't even have a a family. I think of Josh's message last week and he was talking about, you know, uh, people who have a hard time uh, considering God as a good father because their personal experience with their own earthly father was anything but good. And so anytime we raise any of these these subjects, it, it, it can be uh, difficult. 
Uh, many of us have been married and divorced or separated. And the question that keeps popping up is how do we elevate and protect and honor the sanctity of marriage while not causing those who are single or have failed marriages to feel condemned, isolated, or like second-class Christians? Those are real questions. So I want to share a couple things. One is something I've already said, and that is we are all broken. But I want to say this, all families are broken as well. You can use the word dysfunctional if you, if you wish, but all families, our families are dysfunctional to some degree. Jesus' statements about marriage and divorce in Matthew 19 need to be understood as, as a response to the question raised by the Pharisees. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason he wants to? So maybe you haven't been affected by divorce. Or maybe you haven't killed anybody. But God has a camera set up in your heart. And he also has one set up in your home. To simply say divorce is a sin is to simply sim- is similar to saying taking a life is a sin. The carnage is everywhere. It's way too obvious. But sometimes we can't see the forest for the trees. Because I can tell you there's a whole lot of sinning that goes on before you leave that law office with those divorce papers in hand. Both the taking of a life and the ending of a marriage can be a consequential matter of justice, unfortunate always, but part of a much bigger scenario of sin and brokenness. It's always unfortunate whether there are grounds or not, but when we drill down on these things, what we find is layer after layer after layer of sin as deep as the sea. Because our goal is not just to have relationships. Our goal is to have healthy relationships. And maybe you've been able to hold your family together. Praise God. But is it healthy? Because God doesn't want us to settle. He doesn't want us to settle. He wants us to thrive. He wants our relationships to thrive. And if you feel really bad when you look around at all the beautiful families, well, I'll say it again. God has a camera set up in every home. I realized in my own life, in my own family, so much brokenness. So many illustrations of brokenness. And the other thing I want to say about all this is that when we talk about marriage and family, 
We're talking about relationships. Please, please understand this. If you're here today and you're saying, oh, I'm not married, so none of this applies to me. I don't have children, so this doesn't apply to me or whatever. Uh, marriage is a relationship between a man and a woman whereby they covenant together before God to partner together for life. It's a relationship that is not different from other relationships in kind so much as degree. It's about the degree of intimacy. What does that mean practically? And I want to say this before you take what I just said and run with it and think I mean something I don't mean. What it means practically is this. It means that the same principles that apply to uh, other relationships apply to marriage as well, only more so. I talk to people all the time who are having troubles with their marriage. And one of the things that I've conclusions I've come to over all the years is that most of the problems that people have in their marriages and in their families could be resolved if they would simply practice some of the most basic scriptural teaching about how to treat other people. Things that apply to a marriage, but they apply to any relationship. Things like love, things like forgiveness, things like uh, patience, things like kindness and respect. Communication. So we need to understand how profoundly we're affected by sin. Why? So that we can allow God to go deep and do a deep work of grace in our lives. Not a shot. See, here's the thing. If you've been sitting here feeling bad and worse and worse and worse as the longer I talk, the worse you feel. This is the good part. Are you ready? We need to understand just how profoundly we are impacted by sin with all of its catastrophic and destructive influences in our lives so that we can go to God and allow him to do a deep work of grace in our lives. Not a shallow work, not a matter of fact, check off the spiritual prayer checkbox kind of work in our lives, but the kind of light, the work that allows the, the light of God to shine deep, filtered down into the deep crevices of our hearts and our lives so that we can then live out of that kind of grace. Because God is in the business of restoring hearts and families, and he restores families by restoring hearts. Why don't you stand with me? Um, we have uh, some, some application points. What time is it now? Yeah, yeah, okay. We got to wrap, wrap up here. We have, we have these, and uh, I think we have them. I think that they might be, I don't know where they are, but they're somewhere. Or you can just pull out your phone, take a picture of the screen while I'm talking. So this will help you in your, in your group, life group, or even just in your personal uh, time uh, with, with the Lord or, or, or what, what have you. Um, 
with regard to the work that God wants to do in your life and mine and in your family and mine. Most of you know this, but for the sake of those who might not be aware of it, or as a reminder to those of you who do know, but are like me and tend to forget it. When God was proclaiming and pronouncing the the fallout of the fall, the pain, the dysfunction, the more pain, the death, he talked a promise in there. Genesis 3.15, it's a promise of a savior. Jesus. Throughout this series, we, we do want this to be practical. And if, if I have done my job this morning in painting a horrible picture of how bad it really is, this thing we call sin, and you're standing here saying, great, what do I do now? Run to Jesus. Understanding just how profoundly impacted we are by sin is what should cause us. God wants that understanding to cause us. That's what the conviction of the Holy Spirit is, right? He wants to to drive us to the Savior because you you can't do it. You can't fix yourself. You need him. So I invite you to pray with me this morning. I I hope you'll join me in prayer. Lord, I have talked much this morning. And and maybe I have talked too much. Maybe I've gone on too long. But Lord, I am aware of my own brokenness. Please make me more aware of just how much I need you. And I pray for these folks this morning. I pray, dear God, that you would give them that great gift that they may see their need of you. They may see their need of rescue. That they may see their need of deliverance. They may see their need, that we may see our need to be saved. For the benefit of our families as well as ourselves and for your glory. I thank you, Lord, for the gospel. I thank you, Lord, for coming and being willing to come and to pay the price for our sin. Help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to seek you out in every area of our lives and run to you. Bless your people. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.